Joshua Megan has been my teacher since early 2021. Until September this year, we'd only ever spoken on Zoom. And I was not at all convinced in early 2021 that signing up for a Zoom poetry workshop was a good idea. I'm a little bit against workshops in general. I was spending an awful lot of time on Zoom already at that time. But the workshop was through this organization called Brooklyn Poets, who I had interacted with a little bit last time I was in the US. And I thought, you know, it's not like I'm doing anything else productive with my time besides working and maybe signing up for something that starts at 7am my time will get me out of bed. And I was also kind of intrigued at the title of this first workshop I was signing up for. It was all about the sonnet. And I thought, well, I've written sonnets, you know, it's a poem of 14 lines. I can do that. Very quickly, I realized I was in way over my head. This Josh guy seemed to know everything. I was totally freaked out. I was also completely obsessed. And I spent all week on my drafts for this workshop. I don't know whether I managed to write anything worthwhile in that first one, but I signed up for the next one, and then another, and then another, and another. And Josh became the person who was teaching me kind of from scratch how to write poetry. So I was wondering if you could start us off by reading your poem, Cold Turkey. I would be happy to. There's a note to this poem. I don't know if that matters to you, but yeah, no, read it down. says, Cold Turkey echoes language from a chorus of Euripides' Bacchae, as translated by uh, for the Harvard Classics by Gilbert Murray. Will they ever come to me ever again? The long, long dances is the quote. Uh, cold turkey. They're over now forever, the long dances. Our woods are quiet. The god is gone tonight. Our girls, good girls, have shaken off their trances. They're over now forever, the long dances. Only the moonlight, sober and real, advances over our hills to touch my head with white. They're over now forever, the long dances. Our woods are quiet. The God is gone tonight. Didn't really expect that to hit me so hard. I um, I was telling you the other day, I've got that pinned up on my monitor at home. It's the first thing I look at any time I get into the office. Mm -hmm. Thank you. How, how willing are you to talk about sobriety and the period before you stopped drinking? I'm pretty much an open book. Okay. <laughs> so what does the phrase in that poem, the long dances stand in for? Oh, just, um, I guess specifically, uh, if you think about the, the play, the Euripides play, um, that that's kind of like a madness. Mm. Uh, so it's, it, that's what, that's what it is. <laughs> uh, madness, which is a, a you know, mania was, was kind of a pleasure for me. Um, and it did involve dancing, but it's more than dancing. I mean, I, I have not danced properly, I don't think, since I used to get drunk, but um, which is, you know, 24 years ago, almost um, um, in one month from today, actually. Uh, wow. um, it's harder if you're a very self-conscious and self 
loathing person or afraid person to uh, to dance at, for instance, even at a wedding, like Talia, my wife. Um, she, if we, we we go to a wedding, she she might dance, you know, even though she's kind of maybe shyer than I am in a certain way. Um, but I just can't work it out. I'll dance. I'll dance with her here alone. <laughs> we put on some music or something, but otherwise. So yeah, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm skirting the issue somehow. Uh, no, I mean, you know, you're talking about a kind of letting go. Yeah, I used to. So something that's going through my mind is sitting in a bar after work, getting a beer and thinking, throw it all away, just having that kind of thought. And that's like that was that's like still a kind of a beautiful thought in a certain way. I don't know why. Throw everything away, your life. Yeah, just everything. Uh, uh, not really, because I know that if I were dying, or you know, let's say I, I got cancer or something, I would not be. Yay! You know, I wouldn't be thinking. You know, isn't this wonderful? I get to throw my life away. I don't. I love life. I don't want to die. I don't want to um, really to throw it away. But it's, there's just something about not having to worry uh, about it. It's really weird now sitting here trying to unpick what it was like getting to know Josh, because he's now one of those people who I feel like I've always known. Here on the show, I refer to him pretty often as my teacher. But I'd felt for a little while that that really didn't cover it. There were a couple of moments in class where I'd felt like, you know, this guy could be my friend, actually, if it weren't for the 16,666 kilometers between us. I thought we could be friends because on the one hand, he knew the difference between a headless iambic pentameter line and a line of tetrameter with a feminine ending, which I think are kind of the same thing or can sound like the same thing. But he also listened to Black Flag. And I thought, this is a fascinating mix. What I loved about him as a teacher was that he could always see the merit in something and it was possible to tell, this is not always the case, particularly in a poetry workshop, it was possible to tell when he kind of liked something, when he actually liked something, and when he knew that you could do better. And the classes were all levels, all types of students in the same class, and he was able to find strength in all our poems. But for all of us, he was sincerely interested in making us better. I think he made me better. So what was the point 24 years ago, nearly? That, what was the break point? Well, this is the part where I would be absolutely fine talking about it with almost anybody, but I'm afraid that, uh, that it'll color this interview with, uh, with you know, uh, it'll be a little heavy or something. I don't know, but I can try. Um, I have a hard time sort of accepting praise for it because there was a reason that it happened and the reason was you know which is what you're asking about was that i was so scared that i had to, that i was more scared of continuing to drink than i was of of um giving it up mm -hmm. so um but, so yeah and there's a but there's a mournful tone in this poem yeah. which is kind of why i relate to it as well 
you know that first line they're over now forever the long dance is like it's a little traumatic or something but well it's sad to leave chaos behind it is i mean um i uh i still have plenty of chaos in my life <laughs> but uh i i guess i like um it would be it would be good to cut loose in certain ways that i can't i don't i almost never laugh uh, out loud anymore somehow uh um Talia will make me laugh. My mother will make me laugh. But I don't, you know, just day to day, I don't, I mean, I think things are funny. I just don't laugh out loud usually. Mm -hmm. um, what actually precipitated the quitting drinking was um, that a, a very good friend of mine, you know, one of my best friends was, <laughs> uh, this is just, this is just a, 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 what's the right word, like a, a, a proximal, approximate, I can't remember, cause of some kind. Mm. Um, I'm going to use the wrong word, uh, but it did the trick. Uh, I was really in love with this girl, and she was sleeping with this best friend of mine, one of my best friends. Um, and they were they were both I suspected, and I would say to her and to him, uh, "Is there something going on?" And they would they would say, "No, no, 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 no! Don't you're being crazy." I, they were really gaslighting me, um, and. Uh, so, and she was going to therapy with me and stuff, you know, like a couples therapy and all that oh, stuff. Oh, you guys were together. Yeah, we were together. Mm. Yeah. And she was, you know, like I would see her foot under his leg at a, you know, like at my a birthday party of mine. Uh, and I would say, like, what are you, what are you doing? And she was, no, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't, you know, it was very strange. And they're not, neither of them is a bad person at all. In fact, they're probably both good people, but, um. I don't know what the, you know, it was complicated. So I got really uh, upset because I walked into a party where I didn't know, they didn't know I was going to be there and they were like grinding, dancing. And I flipped out and, uh, you know, was very upset. And I, you know, it was just, too, it was too much. Uh, and, you know, emotionally I was afraid of anger and so on. So I just, the next day I woke up probably at four o'clock in the afternoon or something and then went to the bar and it was Halloween and uh, there were drunk idiots all over the place with like costumes on and so I mean they were just having fun I guess but um, then there was a fight and I ordered I had ordered a beer and there was a fight and the bartender had to go break up the fight and um, I was waiting for my beer and I just walked out and that was it I never had a, another oh. drink yeah yeah it was it was a uh, but, you know. I also recognize something in Josh that I saw in myself and in some of the people I love most in the world, this obsessive kind of focus. Josh seemed to me to be someone who'd been able to take that focus off certain destructive things and channel it into writing and thinking about and teaching poetry. Fear is what did it. <laughs> I was able to stop mm. drinking, you know, mm. but I, I, I was also afraid for my life and so on but i think it was just being in love with somebody who was uh you know who uh, trying to be better so that i could work that out but now i don't care about that relationship at all it's i haven't seen this person in 20 something years or 20 maybe 21 years or something i ran into her at a staples which is a, <laughs> uh, like a stationary store and she looked scared and i thought well that's fair i mean i was, I was frightening probably uh, I want to bring up your essay 
which is <laughs> one of my one of my favorite things you've ever written called um I thought you're a poet and in that my favorite bit is where you say quitting alcohol boldly foregrounded my prime reason for seeking oblivion reality <laughs> everyone occasionally feels dissatisfied with reality but some people are born with a vicious Jones Jones to break free from it vicious Jones to break free from reality <laughs> so how do you do that now <laughs> uh gee that's a hard question um do poems help at all poems i don't know uh i don't know about that um maybe writing maybe prose i've been writing fiction also and i uh, that that might be more i don't know that's not really true anymore either but how do i you know how do i break away from reality well i'm thinking about like the process of writing a poem like cold turkey which is a triolet which is a form that you taught us yeah. fiendishly difficult to do in a way that isn't well, just I... just come off like really trite uh -huh. it must have taken a huge amount of like concentration focused energy to write a poem like that is that a way of escaping reality uh i don't know i mean i i kind of remember i have some memory of writing that or another triolet mm. and i think i've had the same experience over and over and i might even have said this to uh to the class uh you know that that you were in often maybe uh, often i've only written three or four or something like that three three of them which is more than anybody should probably ever write of them uh but i've tried a couple more too um yeah but i feel like the way that i'm pretty sure the way i've written them all has been to discover that i had a couple of good lines i thought and then to get frustrated with whatever longer thing i was writing and then say uh, fuck it and and just to try to put it together uh, as a shorter right, poem using those lines yeah. yeah so that's what I did so it's this so sitting down working on a poem working on a line is you, it's not in any way a relief from well the day to day <laughs> it isn't reality that's for sure uh, it's like sitting here working on a book that I you know I'm I've been, like I said I've been working on this this piece of fiction for eight years now and it's it's very long and it's unfinished and it's sort of like i swam into the middle of the ocean and now what you know i don't know what i'm doing i don't know how to write a novel exactly um and probably everybody listening uh and anybody who heard me say this who was a poet would think oh my god a poet you know with a novel another another poet with a novel um or something like that, or another idiot, just any kind of idiot who thinks he can write a novel. Um, and I and I also don't have much faith in the proposition that it'll... I, I can't... I've been trying for a while to get sort of stories published from it, mm -hmm. and I think it's, it's hard, um, and I haven't been... I haven't had much luck. I mean, I haven't had enough bad luck so that I think it's really meaningful yet. Um, but it's also a kind of story that is just not popular right now, probably. The point is that it's like writing it is not is not a very pragmatic thing to do. I sit here every day working for hours on this thing that is never going to, maybe will never be published. I have no idea. Uh, mm -hmm. And that really nobody has read except for my wife and a couple of friends have read parts of it. So that's not reality. But I'm dealing constantly with you know, reality in it, I hope. And trying to make it real, mm. uh, trying to make the situation 
plausible and real and as and alive as I, I possibly can. When I signed up for that first class, I don't think I connected the person running the workshop with the person who had written this essay that I'd read years earlier when I was researching an episode with a sort of a joking title, Are All Poets Depressed? I can't remember what my conclusion in that episode was, but I know I've read the essay of Josh's that I referenced in that episode, I Thought You Were a Poet, at least ten times. Josh's life and my life are pretty different, but I see so many parts of myself in his writing and in that essay in particular. I was working on this theory a couple of months ago that was partially influenced by that essay of yours that... Thank you for reading it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I read it again before I came over here and I just thought, again, how phenomenal it is. But it, it got me thinking about... I I think one of the things you talk about in it is just like what kind of people poets are and I was trying to sort of pull on this thread of like there's an obsessive quality Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't I don't quite know if I can like make this point coherently but like I think there are some poets who are like concerned with am I writing the kind of poetry that will be published at the moment and like am I playing the game and meeting the right people and like hanging out at the right places and that kind of thing. And then there are the obsessives who are like, every day they're chipping away at their mm-hmm. draft, you know. And I've been both. Yeah. Right, you've been both. Yeah, I mean, I was the other kind right before this. So my last book came out in 2014 and I was mm-hmm. I spent, you know, two years like... Hustling. A year before and a year after. I don't know. Yeah, hustling, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not very good at it, but yeah. yeah. Uh, it's really hard work. Yeah, I hate it. It's I awful. really hate it deeply yeah. because, yeah. Uh, which I shouldn't say publicly. No, no, but, no. Uh, but, I, but everybody hates it. Even the people who are being hustled hate it. Some people have to like it the way that it <laughs> gets done. I mean, if you just go know. on Twitter and everybody is can't help themselves, uh, you know. And I, well, I, yeah, maybe. But but what do you think about this? Like, the obsessive. Is that something that ties us together? Maybe that obsessive quality. Us, not you and me. Us, like us, like poets. poets. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, where did I hear this recently? Somebody was saying, was it? Must have been on one of the podcasts here. Maybe it was you. I think it was you actually saying, arguing, sort of that. Um, that uh, was. Is this true? That somebody, somebody was saying that poets don't really try that hard. If they're maybe it was Elijah saying it to you on your. I think it was. Oh yeah, yeah. In this argument about. Um, whether or not you use, you know, whether or not you should use meter um, mm. in poems, I think, you know, you were making the case that that even if you don't use meter, people, even people who don't use meter, are rigorous. I think there's a certain kind of rigor among people who use meter that there often that there there isn't for a lot of people who use free verse. Mm. But I also think that once a person has learned enough meter that then they can be not particularly rigorous with individual poems. And so, and so, I mean, I, I, maybe I'm a little more cynical. So I think that everybody is sort of, um, I, this is very hard for me to balance this because yeah. I can't finish anything now. Um, right. So it's like, uh, I mean, I finish things, but it's a mistake if I finish them. And it's been that way for a very long time. Okay. Uh, and part of it is just the obsessive quality. But um, I, I don't think I work like most people do. And I have, um, probably if you and I sat down and wrote, 
you know, is, had to do a timed writing of a draft. Mm. My draft would be incoherent, completely incoherent. If you gave us a subject, even, mm. it would just be a bunch of words. You know, not even in no syntax, no correct syntax for longer than two or three words or something like that. Uh, and that is not the kind of thing that I want to write. That I ultimately, and part of the reason that I'm a writer is, um, is that I want to be able to repair the, the bad. <laughs> things you know th that come out of me onto paper or whatever <laughs> so um, so yeah uh, I am obsessive but I think I'm also I'm starting I know for a fact that I'm starting behind other people in certain ways well that was the other thread that I really wanted to draw out with you so one of the things you said to us in class was you spent 10 years just watching TV Oh, more than that, actually. I might have sent 10 years, but it was more than that. And when you said that, I felt such a mix of like relief and and like admiration. I don't want anybody to know this. <laughs> this is oh, okay. really? You, no, it's okay. It's totally fine. It's fine. <laughs> no, I can, I mean, I can tell you who was the like the sound man on Sanford and Son. That, I can still tell you that. Like that's that amazing. Kind of Sanford, I don't know if you know what that is. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, but I mean, it's sort of like it. it made me feel such relief and I don't know it's just this thing of like starting late is has always been such a concern of mine because I really didn't get started until my late 20s and then I don't feel like I actually properly got started until mm. I started making this show at 33. That's palpable that you feel that way. And yeah I know I it's like you, exhausting I'm, for everybody I know. Well no no it's, like, that's not what I mean I just mean that you you're, you're too hard on yourself obviously. Oh that's very kind. But, you know, it's so I guess my question is, do you feel like you've made up for the lost time? Do you uh, think of it as lost time? I don't have any way to answer this. Uh, <laughs> no, like, I feel like uh, I have definitely, you know, I mean, I have some things that I feel are successes, you know, like uh, I feel like I've written some good poems or poems that I like. Uh, and I feel like I've. You know, I've had like some some career, you know, whatever it means in poetry, uh, some some kind of career for a while, and that at some point in my life, I really thought I, you know, I, I just co I couldn't even imagine the future. You know, like what would I do? Here's that paragraph that I mentioned again: quitting alcohol boldly foregrounded my prime reason for seeking oblivion, reality. Everyone occasionally feels dissatisfied with reality, but some people are born with a vicious Jones to break free from it. A related force may have compelled Aristo's storytelling and Stephen's imaginative mania. In another vein, it might have led to poems like George Crabbe's The Village or Gwendolyn Brooks' A Street in Bronzeville. For most, the compulsion isn't a desire to enchant a patron or evoke a troubled society. It begins with garden variety stuff sharpened to a point in my case and in many others by a mood disorder. Mine spurs me and furnishes a worldview. But because it also sometimes makes me awkward and disagreeable, I've grown to consider poetry as, in part, a set of tactics for offering my best self to the world. This doesn't mean I write poems to make friends or be straightforwardly charming, but because forethought and discretion rarely appear in my personal life, I like to cultivate them in my poems. I was reminded about things that you 
posted in the Slee Ricketts Substack about meeting Edgar Bowers and then that mm. beautiful poem that you have about, yeah. about oh, him. Thank you, thank you. I um, love that poem. Well, let me just say, first though, I should say that I did have... I did have intellectual models, just not in school. Right. Um, I had my mother and father who are, uh, you know, our family was extremely problematic. Uh, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of issues in our family. Um, but my, my mother was, is, was always concerned with, uh, intelligence and, uh, kind of learning and, and stuff. I mean, she read books, uh, she had books in the house. She had, you know, I think the books that I would at this point like the most or would read now would be like Philip Roth books or um, some John Updike books. But she, you know, I didn't read in school. I remember we were assigned Johnny Tremaine, which is a novel in seventh grade. And actually, I have reconnected with my seventh grade uh, English teacher who is... Uh, uh, an interesting person and you know turns out she's all right I just didn't know that when I was in seventh grade but we 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 read Johnny Tremaine we, were, we had to read it and I really had to read it because I had to either write something about it or take a test um, and I just remember like jamming my head into a chair into the cushions of the chair and just like screaming and <laughs> flipping out and throwing the book across the room and it's like I just couldn't hack it I could I have no idea what the book is about I read it all no idea what it's about it's very different now. I mean, I, I'm, you know, yeah. I read, uh, I've read nothing but novels and, uh, I mean, I always read poetry, but I, I've, I've mostly read, focused on fiction for a few years. Mm -hmm. Um, I had like a conversion experience almost. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm talking too much. Um, no, that's okay. Okay. I had like a, <laughs> uh, I'm a total atheist, so I don't mean anything like that, but, uh, I mean, I had read some things I had, in order to avoid getting a job during one summer, uh, I said, I'm going to read. And I had read, you know, intelligent books, but not maybe not the best books, you know. You know, I, it wasn't like Shakespeare or, or uh, something like that. It was like uh, Anthony Burgess, you know, which is great. Uh, Clockwork Orange. I great read, book. I could say, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, I can enjoy this. And then I discovered that if I read something that I really could like and really get involved in, then I could read it. Yeah, uh, which is maybe an ADHD thing. I don't know, but um, nobody ever uh, pursued the idea that I had ADHD until I was in my thirties. Um, so there was that. But then when I went to I went to graduate school because it was because I apply because I had to do something after college. I applied, and a guy had made a big deal out of a poem I wrote in a workshop. Wait, uh, is that one published? It is. What uh, is it? Which one? Uh, it's oh, it's not in a book. Oh, okay. Um, but he, we, it was a, a workshop, and this will sound obnoxious or pompous or something. But the guy, after I read the poem, said, "I'd like to take that from this magazine." And I was, you know, that was like enough to. I'm still here doing it. You know, that's that <laughs> was enough, and that was uh, yeah, thirty right. years ago, um, yeah. thirty-two years ago now. Um, and then went to school, and when I went to school. It just seemed like, I guess I started to take poetry seriously, or had by then, but not very seriously, you know. Uh, and then I just thought, oh, well, fuck, I'm a fraud. I've never read anything. You know, you have to read stuff if you're going to become a, a good writer. So, um, 
you know, I think a lot of people are like this probably, you know. Uh, uh, Definitely. Uh, yeah, this is a story I hear all the time. I mean, Talia, you know, Talia grew up reading because her parents uh, really kind of just books were always there and she was always sort of, you know, had friends maybe that read too. And, you know, like uh, I did, my friends didn't read. I didn't read. I, you know, people laugh at you if you read probably. So I watched TV and I was also very lazy. I would just lie on this couch and my best friend in childhood would lie on the other couch and we just watch show after show after show after show after sh you know and we would just you know ignore it half the time and mm. just make fun of each other and then <laughs> go out in the backyard and you know start trouble with some other kids or you know shoot windows out of a, somebody's garage with a bb gun or something like that i mean um <laughs> yeah so, but anyway so at some point i started i thought okay what i'm gonna you know what am i gonna do i've got um so I knew some things that were probably well-regarded, like, like I said, Shakespeare before, Chaucer, you know, sort of classics of English literature, uh, sort of simple-minded uh, idea of this, you know, like pure canon all the way at, the, at that point, um, just because that's what was there, what was available for me, you know, what, or what I very superficial research provided. Um, mm. And I just started reading, and at some point I really could say, like, these are the last 10 books I've, you know, I just felt, I just felt stupid. I felt like I didn't know anything. So I would spend every minute that I had free forcing myself to read, uh, you know, things that were very hard in very difficult situations. Like on the train, I was reading Milton on the train, you know, like just, you know, reading the same fucking five lines over and over oh and over God. and over again. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that went on for for quite a while. And just know? by yourself, you didn't have anybody to go no. to and say, what does this line mean though? Not really, yeah, no. Okay. I mean, I had, well, I had smart friends. Mm -hmm. uh, you met Michael the other night. Michael was there, I could, you know, I don't think I ever asked him. I would have been worried that they would laugh, my friends would laugh at me. I don't mm -hmm. think I asked them what it meant necessarily. So look, I don't know if that's an experience that every single poet has that moment of like, I'm a fraud. I haven't read anything, but it's very definitely uh, a moment that I had and yeah, something that I've been trying to correct for 10 years now. And then the, the point that we're coming to in the story here is this moment where Josh meets this older poet or starts his correspondent with this older poet called Edgar Bowers who for a, a short but intense period was kind of like a like a master I guess or, or a mentor of some sort um, yeah and I'm sure it's obvious by this point in the episode that you know Josh kind of fills that role for me and when I met him it was uh, incredibly surreal but also felt very familiar um, and this is Josh's poem about his one meeting with Edgar Bowers. This is from his book, The Optimist. Came out in 2004. And this is called Introduction to Poetry. For Edgar Bowers. They chose a back road leading from the inn. The young man and the great and dying man he's come to see. Over the narrow road arch oak boughs crossed amid the partial dark and bowed with the habitual tact of age. 
Consideration for the rundown thing is what they share, and little else. Rank vines dangle above the dip and crest of asphalt on which they walk toward night, seeking the place where it is understood they must turn back. This is the only chance. This mustn't fail. Young man delivers his imperfect part to old man, who must also hear the sound of his own shoes on a back road at dusk. The involuntary interest in the new cells in his blood carrying his mind past dusk. But when the young man's voice stops and their steps dry private sound against the earth alarm the old man into speech, it is as if he sat at a clavier, stiffened by age, and watched his own unpracticed fingers prove again unerringly, an ageless passion. He hears his voice once more, cadence and rest, weighing, in spite of each step's falling sound of looking back, how poetry began. So where where does um, Edgar Bowers come into the story? Oh, sorry. Uh, I didn't know any poets, really, except for Michael, mm. who, who whom I've known since 1990, um, and, but we didn't really talk about poetry. I knew that he did translations, but then there was a conference. There was a conference in Pennsylvania that I started going to. Met lots of close friends there, most of my friends maybe. Um, so one of the people I met there was Dick Davis, who was a a, a, a poet. Uh, he's British, he was, but he's lived here for a very long time, and we started a correspondence. And uh, in the course of getting to know each other, he asked me, uh, who are some of your favorite living poets? And I, I made a list, Michael Slip, uh, who, who no one will have heard of, uh, but who is a great uh, poet and translator and an old friend of mine um, who just doesn't publish, really. He's published a few things, but not much. Um, he, we, were, we used to go to Gotham Bookmark together, which is a was a great kind of famous uh, bookstore, you know, with like a history. There were all kinds of people and photos. I can't remember who now, but you know, like maybe Elliot. I, I, don't, I don't know, just like people and photos there. And uh, we would get poetry there. We would just stand there for two hours thumbing through poetry books and saying, look at this, this bullshit, this is terrible, or look at this, this is great. Mm. And at some point there was a, uh, an Edgar Bowers book sitting there so I bought the book and I read it and I didn't really care about it uh, at first. I read, I just wasn't paying attention and I thought that the, it's in reverse chronological order. And so I was looking at the last stuff, which is really his early stuff. And his early stuff is, you know, I, I do think that most of his poems are, there's something really um, compelling about probably everything that, that he wrote, I think. I'm, I'm, I'd have to think about it, but. I mean, he's really, really very solid. Um, but his early poems are pretty stiff in a certain way and kind of old-fashioned. He was always a little bit old-fashioned. But um, so I, for a long time, I just let the book sit there. Mm. And then I started reading it, and I found a book called, or a poem called um, Defense of Poetry. This poem is, very, is a, very, it's a very good poem. It's not one of his best poems. He has other poems on the same theme that are better. Um, but it was just the first one I happened to kind of like stick with and loved. And then um, I, and then I just started reading him uh, carefully and I, and I read, 
again, not even his best poems probably I absorbed very slowly. He's dense. Um, and I absorbed uh, numerous of his poems and considered him already a favorite living poet. Uh, he died in 2000, but he was alive then. And so I, I mentioned him in this list. I mentioned him and Donald Justice, and I don't remember who else, but I remember them. Uh, and this is in an email to Dick Davis. And he said, well, you must write and tell Edgar uh, exactly what you just told me, because I told him why I liked yeah. Edgar's poem so much. Yep. So I did, and he and I had a, you know, a seven-month correspondence that was, you know, I waited for every day, like waited for his emails and was excited, and he was, he's really a lovely guy, you know. Um, truly a brilliant person, uh, like kind of a shockingly... Just a shocking presence, uh, you know, in in my life. Uh, um, and everybody, I think, felt that way about him. Everybody who knew him. I certainly have, I don't think I've ever met anybody like him. Um, mm. Dick said that, that it was a kind of a concerted effort on his part, but he really tried to, 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 to be happy and make the best of things. Uh, I mean, if you read his poems, a lot of his poems are very solemn and... Sometimes they're about miserable things, but um, or just important things, I guess. You know, war and and you know, uh, well, they're about lots of things. But I'm just thinking of for Louis Pasteur, which is maybe, uh, which is pr certainly one of his best poems. Uh, it's it's way underappreciated. This poem. I mean, I really, honestly think it's one of the best poems. I'm I'm going to sound foolish, but I do think it's like one of the best poems of the 20th century or at least the second half of the 20th century mm -hmm. um, and nobody knows this poem at all and people don't don't care when they read it they just they don't you know it's like confusing <laughs> to people so I'm going to prove Josh right here because I was thinking oh I could include that poem uh, here in the episode but it's I don't understand it I don't I mean it's beautiful it's, I can tell that it's beautiful, but I can't, I don't understand it well enough to, to share it and to talk about it. There is this one section um, that, that really hits me where he says, My childhood friend George Humphreys, whom I still see, still 10 years old, his uncombed hair and grin moment by moment in the Hurtgen dark until the one step full in the sniper's sight his pastor father emptied by the grief. Emptied by the grief is insane. It's so, it's crushing. Um, so look, I'm not gonna, that's not gonna be my example of Edgar Bowers. I'm gonna go back to a poem that I do know, that I feel that I do understand and that I love very much. This is just a short one called Amor Vincit Omnia, which I will, loosely translate as love conquers all. Love is no more. It died as the mind dies, the pure desire relinquishing the blissful form it wore. The ample joy and clarity expire. Regret is vain. Then do not grieve for what you would efface, the sudden failure of the past, the pain of its unwilling change, and the disgrace. Leave innocence and modify your nature by the grief which poses to the will indifference that no desire is permanent in sense. 
take leave of me. What recompense or pity or deceit can cure, or what assumed serenity conceal the mortal loss which we repeat? The mind will change, and change shall be relief. I had a shrink who would, who would talk about, he said, the problem with you is you are a, an otherness person. Otherness. <laughs> yes, otherness. Yeah. He was, he was uh, German. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, as opposed and to a sameness as, person. As opposed to a sameness person. That's exactly right. So huh. we would talk about sameness people and otherness people. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I think that a lot of the poetry world, although everybody is sort of considers this themselves um, to be kind of automatically rebels or something, I think there's a lot of conformism going on really know. yes oh absolutely yeah trying to be accepted by other poets or what the fashion is of the time yeah yeah um yeah okay there are many poets uh here there's one poet who uh, blurred my last book and who's a who's a you know a really interesting poet and uh, i'm grateful to him it gets flack i know i've never talked about this with him but he gets flack for um uh, characterizing himself as a as an outsider when in fact he's you know taught in colleges and you know and this like one I think he's won a Pulitzer or something you know he's won big awards, um, but he is kind of an outsider too you know like mm. he doesn't fraternize in the way other people do with poets you know or the way other poets do with each other you know mm. it seems like there are like gangs of poets you know there really are in at least here there are kind of gangs of poets. Who um, hang out together and... Yeah, and who are yeah. friends and they, you know, everybody blurbs each other and everybody is, I mean, you know, I'm not excluding myself from this either, um, but it's just like little groups of poets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one of my one of my previous guests used the word coteries yeah, to yeah. describe the, like, parts of the Australian poetry scene is a similar kind of thing. But it's funny because I think that that, that exists and then there is also this thing like what you described with you and Edgar where it's like two poets who just see and understand each other and really admire mm. each other through the work and have a, a correspondence relationship. Well let me put let me say this though. Edgar thought that thought that Yeats was not that great. So, you know, like uh, I mean he was very a very, very uh, severe critic in a lot of ways. Um, he and he was he was kind to me about my poems, but it was not a, a reciprocal thing. You know, it was like no, sure. Uh, you know, he's like he was a, more of a mentor figure. But yeah, yeah. but I suppose what I mean is that kind of like one to one, you meet up maybe once in your life, if at yeah. all. Kind yeah, once of, we, we only met once, and that's what that poem is about. Yeah, yeah. that was a, and I really was uh, almost never have I felt kind of even by people I was supposed to be you know, uh, wowed by in person, you know, should have felt, you know, should have been shaking or something. I, I never felt that <laughs> that way about most people, but with him, I really did. Um, yeah. uh, and he was, uh, he, he was really something else. I mean, and you know, Dick is, Dick was maybe, Dick was certainly more of a mentor to me, uh, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I only had seven months of knowing Edgar, but we did have an intense, you know, kind of correspondence and so on. But, uh, um, Dick, I, you know, I, uh, we're still friends. Uh, I, I don't write to him as much as I used to because I, because I hate email. Because <laughs> uh, I, I really hate it. I mean, I can't, I can't, I never write emails. Everybody hates me now. Uh, my first book came out of a lot of those, of that kind of interaction with him and another 
um, poet Catherine Tufariello. We were um, friends in the late 90s and early 2000s, writing to each other all the time and uh, looking at each other's poems and criticizing them. And, and that was a very productive time, I think, for all of us. I want to read one of Josh's from his 2014 collection, Accepting the Disaster. A lot of the poems in this book have been read and discussed on other podcasts, on Slee Ricketts, on Versecraft, but I don't think that we've looked at this one. This is, to me, this is kind of like a picture of the, the place where Josh is from. He's talked about this book um, when he's done readings in the past and talked about how it's, it's about where he's from and it's about that, that kind of life. And I think this gives a pretty visceral sense of, of some of that life. This is called the cement plant. The cement plant was like a huge still, nailed in grey corrugated panels and left out 45 years ago in the null centre of a meadow to tax itself to remorseless death near a black stream and briars, where from the moment it began to breathe, it began falling apart and burning. But it still went and the men were paid. The plant made dust, impalpably fine, hung in a tawny alkaline cloud, swept into drifts against millroom piers, frozen by rain on silo ledges. Dust was its first and its final cause. Pinups were traced on their car windshields. Dust gave them jobs and killed some of them. Late into evening, their teeth grated. Its product was dust, its problem, dust. The thing was blind to all its own ends, but the one. Men's ordinary lives measured out on a scale alien to that on which its life was measured, was spent in crawling the junk machine, fitting new gaskets, screws and bearings, deceiving it toward the mood required for it to avail and pay. Somehow it did. None cheered it. It sustained them. I really wanted to ask what you enjoy about teaching. Mm. Get to listen to myself talk for, <laughs> for three hours. That's, that's a joke. I mean, I do enjoy talking, obviously. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, okay, so, well, the things I enjoy the most are, uh, in in those classes, Brooklyn Poets classes, where I'm teaching technique, mostly technique, um, you know, which is something that people don't really study, uh, mostly. I feel, like, I feel like I have a few really easy points that I can make that will help people to understand this thing that I love which is versification um and i feel like i've had this experience many many times of people again i don't want to sound arrogant but people saying i mean it's i you know i didn't make this up i didn't discover this thing that i'm talking about which is a conflation of meter and, and rhythm um which may not make sense to anybody who's listening it is a thing that is very important and that has completely fucked up the way that this that that metrical uh, poetry is thought of, written, 
it's 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 really been disastrous and it's part it's because it's culturally dead after modernism and so on um but i you know i uh get a like a huge kick out of seeing people go oh, oh that's what it's about <laughs> you know and also nobody ever talks about what versification is used for what is it for you know um and so you know almost always whenever i teach one of these classes i'll say yeah, what do you think it's for and people will say the same things music music you know but it doesn't get much more detailed than that mm. um and it's, it sounds like i'm saying oh everybody's so stupid and i know the secret or something but that's not what i'm saying at all it's just that it's discouraged you know this is it really is like actually discouraged except in us this kind of as a novelty you know mm. like oh oh well here i'm gonna put on my formalist hat or something and write a sistina of course it's got to be a sistina um so it's good to feel that i can you know share with people some under my understanding at least of what you know what it's for what it's you know what what versification is for i'm not i'm not telling people things that they could couldn't learn from somewhere else although there's such a there's such a huge amount of forgive me you know uh uh bad stuff on the subject that it really is like what is it the peter principle or gresham's law i can't remember the bad pushes out the good i you know um so that really there's a lot of stuff that you just you know you would never learn because it's, there's so it's much also crap. just awful i don't know for for me anyway it's an awful thing to learn out of a book yeah it's hard yeah I mean, it's, that's true of so much poetry. Mm. This is what this is what I always say um, that po you know poetry is poetry itself is alienating to people because if it's modern or postmodern, it's probably going to be elusive uh, <laughs> uh, and obscure or difficult. And then if it's before modernism, it's difficult to people because the language is different and it's hard for them to relate to. And so I remember reading King Lear for the first time and thinking, oh, my God, you know, this is pretty dire. This is, you know, not not dismissing it, but just thinking, do people really enjoy this process? You know, or Milton, too, the same thing mm. when I first started reading it. But then I discovered that if you just like look up all the references and uh, or, you know, it's not references in King Lear. But if you look up, you know, I got the Shakespeare lexicon. And looked up what words meant that I didn't understand. And I read, you know, I did research and I and I read the footnotes and I got editions that were use, you know, had useful information in them. And uh, like I didn't understand why this thing at the beginning would be happening. You know, why is he asking them to? I mean, what is this? How do I take this? What's how is how how is this? You know, what is the framing? Is it is it supposed to be somehow? Is, how sincere is he you know what's going well, I just didn't understand it mm. um, but then when I found I, I did like a lot of background reading about it and stuff and I went back and I remember sitting in a diner on like 47th and this at lunch um, I used to work way over by the UN and just sitting there in a diner and reading reading it after I had done all this work and be like, yes, you know, this is okay. Now I fucking get this. This is amazing, you know. And then watching it also, like, oh, you can watch it, you know, enacted or whatever, you know. And watching first the Olivier version and thinking, 
wow, that's really pretty. That brings it alive. And mm. then saying to somebody, uh, Tom Dish actually saying like, what do you think of the Olivier version? Tom Dish was a, was a, 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 a the generation. He was my father's, you know, age. Um, but he was a poet and a critic and a, actually a science fiction writer. And I said something about that and he said, he just like shit all over it. He was <laughs> like, oh, I, I kind of like that, uh, uh, that, that production. Olivier's just playing himself and so on. And he recommended something to me. I don't remember what it was, but, um, and then, you know, watching various other versions of it and getting whatever I got out of those and, um, and obsessing about it until now, really, I don't, uh, maybe I say this a lot or something, but I don't cry that easily. But now if I think about certain scenes in King Lear, I would like start to get teary, mm. but it's, it's, it, it's not that they're, it's not even necessarily that they're so moving. It can be partly that they're, they're moving to me because they're so un unbelievable. Like they're just truly like brilliant, unbelievably brilliant, you know? Mm. Um, so that's a, something that I hope in some tiny minimal way that I can share with people is, um, I mean, a lot of people who take Brooklyn poets classes are, they might be 60 years old and, you know, like, uh, retired, or they might be an architect, you know, and with, with limited time or whatever. So it's, it's, you know, just curious about poetry for whatever reason. Mm. Um, and so it's good to feel that I can, I can help people appreciate poetry. So that's good. I wish I had had somebody uh, when I was really young, yeah. uh, you know, between like when I was in college up to graduate school who could have helped me with those things. Um, I just stuck with it because I'm because there's something wrong with me. That's why I, I, I stuck with it. Uh, <laughs> I still remember how good it felt to email Josh and tell him that one of the poems that I'd written in his class had been published. He wrote back the sweetest funniest email and no offense to the delightful folks at the journal in which that sonnet was published but it was the email the email from Josh and not receiving the journal that really meant something to me so knowing Josh has changed my life in a lot of ways at some point in one of these classes Josh mentioned this podcast I might like called Slee Ricketts I started listening pretty much immediately wrote a fan email to the host and these days I sometimes get to co-host the show. It's skipping over a lot to say this but the combination of Josh's classes and that show I think have made me at least a better reader and maybe a tiny bit of a better writer. And when I say that what I mean is that I can now see some distance between what I'm writing now and what I was writing when I signed up for that first workshop. And that's all I can really hope for, is to keep lengthening that distance. Going to Brooklyn in September, meeting Josh, hanging out, it was surreal and, and magical. Josh and his wonderful wife, Talia, who I could write an entire other episode about, they... They took me on a picnic. They threw a party for me. Josh's mum gave me front row center tickets to the New York City Ballet. Basically, Josh and Talia and Lisa made me feel like I was some kind of Aussie poetry celebrity <laughs> for five weeks. I thought I would just include one last poem from Accepting the Disaster here at the end. 
Because, you know, sometimes sometimes you're in Brooklyn and you're having a party and uh, meeting a whole bunch of exciting people. And sometimes it's just a normal day. And I like this poem because it is about a very normal day. It is called The News. What happened to today? Where did it go? The raindrops dot the window and roll down. One taps the glass, another, three at a time, warping the view of black tree limbs and sky. Long hush, quick crescendo. Wind leans on the sash. Behind me in the shadows sleep two cats. Nearby, like something small deposited tenderly by a big wind on the bed, my wife sleeps deeply through the afternoon. The sky is grey. What colour is the sky? Rhinoceros? Volcanic dune? Moon dust? Breast of a morning dove? Grey butterfly? Blank newsprint. There's no news. No news at all. And will be none. Until at long last in the other room, one light comes on. And then another one. <laughs>